What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello, and welcome to my podcast. This is an audio version of my videos, available to make listening to my stuff in the background easier than YouTube makes it. But since my videos are primarily made for YouTube, there may be occasional references to visual materials. If you'd like this podcast ad-free, you can join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash vicerhino. Please enjoy. Hello, and welcome to my channel. Vice Rhino here. Today, I'm taking a bit of a departure from my normal MO. Ordinarily, I don't like to cover videos from the same channel too close together, but this time is a bit different, because this time when I decided to do the What Would You Say video on climate change, I found in my What Would You Say folder another video that I had downloaded way back in January and flagged it for covering when I had a sponsor to attach to it because it talks about abortion and the YouTube monetization bots don't like that topic very much. Though they are getting better than they used to be, so I'm going to risk covering this video without a sponsor, as this topic is quite relevant at the moment, and I'll pray for good fortune from the algorithm gods. In this one, Greg Kokel tries to teach us how to manipulate a conversation by asking questions in bad faith with the intention of making your point rather than actually learning anything about why someone holds the positions that they do. And he pretty much explicitly says that, so let's take a look. You're in a conversation and you see a clear weakness in your friend's argument. You want to drive home your point, but you're worried that they'll disengage if you come across too strongly. What would you say? Well, assuming that this is someone that I care enough about to want to keep a good relationship with and continue the conversation, I would politely disagree and, depending on the topic, I might ask for sources for their claims and provide sources of my own to support my claims. Of course, this analytical approach doesn't often work for in-person conversations because most people just don't go around with a list of scientific studies in their minds to back up their opinions on various issues. But in this digital age, it is fairly easy to do some cursory research on the spot as long as you allow them time for that and ask that they return the favor. But that is highly dependent on the setting. If I'm at, like, say, a wedding reception, I'm probably not going to be getting into a source battle with someone that I disagree with. I'm actually more than likely just going to do one of those, oh, is that so, things before changing the subject. When talking with someone who feels strongly about something, but may not have the best reasons to support their view, it can be tempting to shut them down with logic. It's awfully presumptuous of you to assume that logic would indeed shut down their position. You know, it's interesting, but the people that I see talking the most about how facts and logic are on their side are usually the people that are mostly making arguments that appeal to emotion rather than logic. And we'll see some of that in this video, even before he gets to where he advocates for asking questions with the explicit intention of manipulating the conversation to your end goal rather than having an honest discussion. But remember... Your goal isn't to shut them down. It's to put a stone in their shoe, so to speak, to get them thinking, to do a little gardening. 
Yeah, I actually really like the stone in the shoe analogy because that perfectly describes how I ended up leaving Christianity. The stone was that one Bible verse that had the appearance of error. It was an easily reconciled error, but I didn't think that the Bible should even appear to be an error, even if it can be reconciled, and the fact that this verse had that appearance was a stone that sat in my shoe for years, just poking at me, being annoying. No matter how many times I took off my shoe and shook it out, I just couldn't get that stone out of it. And that eventually led me to a more thorough reading of the Bible than I had ever done before, which led me straight into atheism. And as much as I dislike Greg's dishonest tactics, it's true that you don't change people's minds in single encounters. You do so by leaving them with something that they find hard to reconcile with their position, which they will think about on their own time. And that could eventually lead to them changing their minds. The next time you're in this kind of conversation, here are three things to remember. Number one, choose your target. What is the point you want to make? In this kind of situation, you're not asking questions to gather information. You know, because why on earth would you ever want to have an honest discussion where both parties are open to changing their minds based on new information, when you can just assume that you are correct about everything and use manipulation to guide the conversation where you want? Rather, you want to use questions to make a point. You know, it is possible to use questions to make a point while simultaneously actually paying attention to the answers and gathering information. But what is the point you want to make? That's the key here. Your questions are going to be like arrows that are shooting at a target. So what's the target you're shooting at? What's the specific flaw or weakness in the other person's view that you want to exploit? Your first step is to clearly identify for yourself what the flaw is. See, like I said, he is approaching this from a dishonest perspective, and he's not even trying to hide that fact. Personally, I'd rather ask questions about the other person's perspective so that I can come to more fully understand it. Then, with a better understanding of their position, I will be more able to explain my position from a perspective that is more relevant to the other person. If you start with the assumption that you already fully understand their position, and so aim for what you perceive as a weakness, but your understanding was imperfect to begin with, then you're probably going to be wasting your effort. For example, someone says, abortion is health care. Now I happen to know that killing an unborn child has nothing to do with health care. See? There we go. That's the appeal to emotion in the segment before we've even gotten to the how can I use dishonest questions to lead the person to that conclusion against their will portion of the video. This is supposed to be the position that he has facts and logic to back up. But it is a fact that a fertilized egg is not a baby. A blastocyst is not a baby. A fetus that has not developed the portions of the brain required to have consciousness is not a baby. And even then, at the approximately 24 to 28 week mark where the parts of the brain that would allow us to call it a baby begin to develop, it is, arguably, still not a baby, as those parts are only just beginning, and for about another two months there is no measurable EEG rhythm that indicates the onset of neuronal integration, which would be required for consciousness. But the 24 to 28 week mark is pretty much where everyone agrees that the discussions on abortion become more nuanced, with more consideration given to the fetus than in the previous stages. But ultimately, even if it were 100% unambiguously an individual person deserving of equal consideration as the pregnant person, the fact of the matter is that in no other scenario do we ever force anyone to use their body to keep someone else alive. If one of my children ends up having kidney failure and will definitely die without a kidney donor, and it turns out that I am a perfect match for them, 
nobody is able to force me to donate my kidney to them, even though it would save their life and leave me still mostly healthy. So why is that different with a fetus using another person's body to keep itself alive? Can you answer that using facts and logic, or do you have to appeal to emotion and just claim it's a baby right from fertilization? Well, here's a fact for you. My wife was declared dead while she still had about the same brain activity as a fetus before the 24 to 28 week stage of development, and realistically probably had more brain activity than them. Why, then, was it perfectly acceptable to pull the plug on her when she's not relying on anybody else's body to survive, but it's not okay to abort the fetus even when it is a direct threat to the health of its parent? What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, Cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. So that's my target, to show that abortion does not serve the health needs of anyone. So in an ectopic pregnancy, which happens at a much higher rate than I thought originally, about two per 100 pregnancies are ectopic, there is a 0% chance of saving the fertilized egg, and there is a very high chance of things like internal bleeding, infection, and death. The only treatment for ectopic pregnancy is the removal of the pregnancy. And you claim that that doesn't serve the health needs of anyone? Or how about after intrauterine fetal demise, where the fetus dies while still in the uterus? For which, one of the most common treatments is an abortion, and without treatment, this can lead to infection and death. Or how about in the case of that 10-year-old girl who ended up having to go to a different state to obtain an abortion? Pregnancy is incredibly dangerous for people under 20, with the dangers increasing as the age decreases. There's everything from bleeding during pregnancy to toxemia, hemorrhage, prolonged and difficult labor, severe anemia, and permanent disability. And that's just some of the physical risks for the girl who is pregnant. It is by no means an exhaustive list, and there's also the psychological trauma of not only carrying her rapist's baby, but having to raise a child while still a child herself. That would be astronomically dangerous damaging to her. I have an 11-year-old. He still sits in a booster seat, for f**k's sake. If you're too young to sit without a booster seat, you shouldn't be a parent. And these are just a handful of scenarios where it is impossible to deny that an abortion is necessary for the health of the person receiving it. But then there's also the fact that even the most healthy of pregnancies causes permanent bodily damage. So if a pregnancy is unwanted, then preventing that damage absolutely does serve the health needs of the pregnant person. And on top of all of this, at the end of the day, it's just none of your damn business what transpires between a person and their doctor. If their doctor decides to provide them with an abortion, it's not our business why. Just as I don't owe you an explanation for when I decided to allow my wife to be taken off life support, or for why I take medication every day, or for what will happen at any of my kids' future doctor's appointments. At the end of the day, abortion is healthcare, and so the provision of abortion should be a decision that is made between the doctor and their patient. Not the doctor, the patient, the government, the local church, and the group of protesters that they'll have to push their way through to get to the clinic. So my questions are going to move the discussion in that direction. 
not if the person you're talking to actually knows anything about the matter, they won't. This is a problem when approaching it from this angle. You've got this nice little script, and as long as the other person follows the script, everything will work fine. But if the person you're talking to goes off script, you now have to figure out how to get them back on script. You can't just have an honest discussion, you have to try and force the conversation in the direction you want it to go. As a nice little example of this, I actually had a fairly lengthy discussion on Twitter with someone who was trying to suggest that the universe itself is evidence for God, because there's no way it just created itself out of nothing. And the person I was talking to didn't really seem to be paying attention to what I was saying. They kept trying to bring it back around to the question of, have you ever seen anything create itself out of nothing? All while accusing me of dodging this question when I would point out that the majority of cosmologists don't think that that's what happened. They were floundering, unsure of how to get the conversation to their desired endpoint when I didn't follow the script that they had planned out, and when I eventually answered the question with a yes, I have seen things create themselves with sufficient natural causation, which is applicable in these cosmologies, at that point they abandoned the conversation because the scripted answer is no, and I didn't give it. Number two, determine the steps you need to take to get to your conclusion. Now, since I've seen what I know to be a clear weakness, that abortion is not health care. Then at the end of the day, you'll lose the argument, because that clear weakness there can only stem from an incorrect understanding of the subject matter. I also know the particular reasons I can give to show why that's the case, because I've thought about the issue. Thinking about the issue and being informed on the issue are two very different things. Talk to a medical professional about it sometime. Maybe even talk to a doctor that provides abortions. There might be some things that a medical doctor knows about medicine that you, someone with degrees in philosophy and apologetics, probably don't know. Now, this is an important point, and why this step is harder than the others. You not only have to know that the view is mistaken, you have to know why it's mistaken. Which, for this specific example, you clearly do not. You might get this information from other what-would-you-say videos or books you've read or courses that you've taken, whatever. When it comes to medical matters, maybe get the information from experts in medicine rather than apologetics YouTube videos. Just saying. But you have to have these specific steps of reasoning worked out in your mind first before you can go further, since these are the reasons you're going to be using in the next step. To translate, you have to have a script that will force your interlocutor to your desired end goal. Number three, ask questions that enlist your friend as an ally in making your point. Again, to translate, ask manipulative questions designed to evoke the desired response rather than trying to figure out what their position actually is. For example, the person says to me, abortion is health care. I say to him, let me ask you a question. What is health care? And then I respond by looking up the definition of healthcare in an online medical dictionary, which defines it as the services rendered by members of the health professions for the benefit of a patient. Abortion falls pretty squarely under that definition. He says, well, it's making someone healthier, obviously. Yeah, that's a decent top-of-my-head style definition, but even without looking it up, that's not what I would have said. Though, honestly, it is hard for me to say what I would have said, because I looked it up and read the actual definition before thinking about how I would answer that question without looking it up, so now I can't unlearn the definition that I already read in order to figure out what my definition would have been before. But I can tell you that it would have been more nuanced than that. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do 
and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Good. Is pregnancy an illness? Now that's a dishonest question. Healthcare is not exclusively about treating illness. The injuries you get from being in a car accident aren't an illness, but the treatment of those injuries is still healthcare. In fact, ideally, the majority of the times when you go to see your doctor should not be because of illness. It should be for things like periodic checkups so that you can take actions recommended by your doctor to stay healthy, which could be anything from a change in diet, daily routine, the prescription of medications, avoiding certain medications, getting colonoscopies, and a whole host of other things. In fact, if you're actually trying to have a baby, you should be going in for regular checkups all through the pregnancy even if you're not ill. That is healthcare. Hell, with that definition of healthcare, going to the gym is healthcare. Eating a salad instead of a burger is healthcare. Having regular orgasms is healthcare. So many things that are just healthier choices would actually be healthcare, even if there was no illness being treated. But if healthcare is only about the treatment of illness, then none of the things that I've mentioned here actually count as healthcare because they weren't in response to illness. This one-dimensional view of healthcare is unhelpful, to say the least. Is pregnancy an illness? Of course not. Well, no, despite everything I said in my previous interjection, sometimes pregnancy can be an illness, like in the aforementioned cases of ectopic pregnancies and intrauterine fetal deaths. Other times, it can lead to illness. So even in your warped, overly simplistic view of what counts as healthcare, abortion still counts as healthcare. So, I say, abortion can't be healthcare for the mother, she's not sick. You don't have to currently be sick in order for something to constitute healthcare. And even in a pregnancy where there are no warning signs of any potential issues, pregnancy still causes a good deal of bodily trauma, and if carried out fully, it will end with either the traumatic and uncomfortable experience of labor and delivery, or with major surgery. After carrying a pregnancy to term, your body will never be the same as it was before. Nobody should be forced to go through that. And on top of all of this, even if you are in favor of abortions when the life of the pregnant person is at risk, there is almost never a binary moment where there is a 100% chance that a continuation of the pregnancy will lead to death and abortion will not. It is never that clear-cut. There's a bunch of risk factors and the doctors are making educated guesses about what could potentially happen. If you have rules where abortions are only allowed when the patient's life is in danger, you'll now have doctors wondering whether the patient's life is in enough danger to be able to legally defend themselves for providing the abortion, rather than just being concerned with providing proper health care. And so doctors will start being more conservative with their estimates about how much danger the person is in, thereby increasing their risk. At what point is it legally acceptable? If the risk is 70-30, 60-40, 50-50, where's the cutoff? And if I get prosecuted for this, are they going to get a Catholic doctor up on the stand that said, like, no, the person's life was not in danger at all? And how is one supposed to perform the calculation that figures out the risks in a way that will protect them should they end up being prosecuted for performing an illegal abortion? The best solution here that will save the most lives is to allow abortion to remain a decision between the doctors and their patients. What about the fetus? What does abortion do to the fetus? It yeets it. Yeet us that fetus. 
Oh, it kills it. Right. Then how is abortion healthcare for the fetus? It's not. It's healthcare for the pregnant person. And about 93% of abortions are performed before 13 weeks gestation. That is well before any argument could be made that it has sufficient brain activity to be considered its own separate person. And less than 1% of abortions happen in the third trimester. Those that happen later are usually due to one of two factors. Either they had trouble accessing abortion services because of restrictions on such services where they live, and so the abortion was delayed, or it was medically necessary. This can happen for many different reasons. One fairly common one is that the brain of the fetus just never develops, and because of how the brain develops, this is essentially undetectable until after the 23 to 28 week point, where the portions of the brain that are responsible for consciousness start developing. What have I done here? I've identified a flaw, and the steps that reveal the flaw. No, you've oversimplified the topic of healthcare to the point of error, ignored the fact that even with this oversimplified view, abortion is still healthcare, and barged onward in arrogant ignorance as though you've made a point. And that thing earlier where you admit that you're not interested in new information will prevent you from correcting this ignorance. And a series of questions that enlist my friend as a helper to expose the flaw. Which will only work if your friend is at least as ignorant on the subject as you are. This guy wrote a book on apologetics called Tactics, and the whole thing is about using tactics like this one in order to win arguments, ostensibly to convince atheists to become Christian. But if this video is indicative of the quality of the tactics outlined in that book, then they aren't actually tactics for winning people over to your side, they are tactics that will make you look like an insufferable know-it-all who's actually wrong about all the things that you think you know. So the next time you're in a conversation and someone feels very strongly about their view, remember these three things. And then throw those three things straight into the garbage where they belong. That's it for this one. Today's comment of the day comes to us from Vernon Chitlin, who says, Atheists don't admit that abiogenesis hasn't been proven or is even close to being. Just demonstrating a prebiotic collection of the elements did cough up a single average relevant protein hasn't been accomplished, but still insist a warm little pond managed producing the 42 million proteins in the simplest cell? Well, a couple things here. First, abiogenesis is kind of in the same boat as cosmology at this point. We know of many potential paths that it could have taken, but we are unsure about which would have been the most plausible in the environments that would have been found on the prebiotic Earth, and so we still need to narrow it down. If you want an in-depth look of abiogenesis, I highly recommend the two-part takedown of Dr. James' tour on Professor Dave's channel. He goes over what we know of the science of abiogenesis much more thoroughly than I could hope to do here, and it's a lot more than most apologists would have you believe. Second, to address the 42 million proteins thing, that comes from a study that attempted to count how many individual protein molecules were contained in a yeast cell. So that is not the simplest cell. That distinction belongs to the bacterium Mycoplasma mycoides, and if you really want to get into it, there's a human-designed version of this bacterium that is even simpler than the naturally occurring one, but as to there being 42 million proteins in the yeast cell, that is not 42 million different types of protein, that is 42 million individual protein molecules. That's a pretty important distinction here, especially since we're talking about evolution. If one mechanism evolves that successfully replicates one type of protein, there needs to be no further evolution in order for that mechanism to replicate multiple copies of that one type of protein. 
Now, it's hard to pin down exactly how many different types of proteins there are in a cell, but a good starting point is to count how many protein-coding genes are present in the genome. In the human genome, we have some 20,000 protein-coding genes, but that's not where it ends. There are different things that can happen to proteins after they are coded, where the same protein in two different environments will be modified slightly, and so perform a slightly different function, and so even though they begin as the same protein from the genes, they are functionally two different proteins. Now, as I mentioned, it is hard to estimate, but when put on the spot, researchers said that they think it's likely that there are about 100,000 different types of protein in one cell. That's a lot, but it's a couple orders of magnitude down from 42 million. And that's human cells. If we go back to the Mycoplasma mycoides, it only has 452 protein-coding genes. If the ratio of protein-coding genes to the total count of different types of proteins remains the same here, that means there are probably only about 2,300 types of protein in the Mycoplasma. I mean, there's no real reason to expect that the ratio would actually remain the same here, but we're just doing back-of-the-envelope calculations at the moment. Keep in mind, though, that when talking about humans and mycoplasma and yeast and all these, these are organisms that have been evolving for billions of years. How many proteins are necessary for the first thing that we might call life? Well, the answer for that is a bit tricky, and it depends very much on how we define life, which is itself a tricky question. But all of that aside, the main thing I wanted to bring up here was the bit in the middle about how proteins can change very slightly depending on what is present in the environment, which will cause them to serve a slightly different function. Do you know what process works through slight changes to existing materials? Evolution. This seems to me to be a very plausible mechanism for the evolution of several different functions for various proteins. So that's fun. Thanks for watching. Thanks to Tim Robertson for being my Patreon manager, and special thanks as always to my patrons, who will be thanked by name in a future video, as I am doing this one in advance, so that I can take my kids camping for a couple days without having to worry about work. But I guess I should still come up with a clever comparison for them, so thanks to my patrons who are the aborted fetuses that are consumed by the atheist that is my channel. If you'd like to keep my channel permanently young, you can join us on Patreon for as little as a dollar per week over at patreon.com slash vicerhino, or by supporting the channel in one of the other methods that can be found at links.vicerhino.com, which is also where you'll find links to my other projects. If for whatever reason you want to send me stuff, my P.O. Box address is in the description. See you next time! Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.